Hello and welcome back to 202 Decades of Western History. This is the fourth and final prologue episode before we jump into the decades. However, this fourth episode became too long. To get it out to you sooner, in a more digestible form, I've split this one into two parts. It's time to fix our full gaze upon the Italian peninsula. When we talk about Western civilization, if such a thing ever really existed, ancient Rome is at its core. First as the thing itself, then as a memory, then as mimicry, and finally as a model. The idea of the lost Roman world haunts all the history of the West. The Roman Empire will be at the center of our story for at least the first 47 episodes of the series, and its memory and its successors and its imitators will last much longer. So, we really should spend some time wrapping our heads around Rome. You've probably heard by now that Rome wasn't built in a day. We at 202 decades of Western history have decided to fact-check this statement. After several days of research, we can rate the statement as true. In fact, it took quite a long time to build. Its story starts as a small town of little importance halfway down the Italian peninsula. Unlike the powerhouse we're familiar with, it was neither a republic nor an empire, but a kingdom, living in the shadows of its neighbors. The mists of time have obscured Rome's origin. For the first era of Roman history, legend will have to be our guide. A few versions of the legend of Rome's founding exist, with many claiming a Greek or Trojan origin for the city. The most famous version, though, and the one I'll relate here, involves Romulus and Remus. These twins were born to Rhea Silvia in the city of Alba Longa, located 12 miles southeast of the future site of Rome. Their father was the god Mars, the god of war. Silvia was the daughter of Numitor, the former king of Alba Longa, who had been displaced by his brother, Amulius. The new king, the twins' great-uncle, saw them as a future threat to his rule, and ordered the boys killed. Silvia disobeyed the orders, and instead of killing them, she abandoned them on the banks of the river Tiber. The god of the river, Tiberinius, saved the two boys. They were nursed by a she-wolf, and eventually fell into the care of the shepherd, Faustulus. As they grew, they were unaware of their royal lineage, but nevertheless they became natural leaders and attracted a following. They became involved in a dispute between the supporters of Numitor and Amulius, and in the fighting, Remus was captured and taken to Alba Longa as a prisoner. Amulius suspected he knew the boy's lineage. Romulus, meanwhile, gathered his followers and freed his brother. In this effort, the twins discovered their true heritage. They joined forces with their grandfather Numitor, and after killing Amulius, they restored him to the throne. Not content to simply rest as heirs to Alba Longa, the twins left with their supporters to establish their own city. They wandered north and east and found a hilly site overlooking the Tiber River. There was just one issue. Which hill to build the city upon? Remus chose the southernmost of the seven hills on the east bank of the Tiber, while Romulus chose the one just north of it, the Palatine Hill. The two could not settle this dispute, so they each dug in. Romulus built a wall around his settlement, and Remus and his followers came over to prove the wall was inadequate. Remus climbed the wall, but in anger, Romulus himself, or one of his followers, killed Remus. 
That settled the hill question. Romulus's city of Rome was founded in fratricidal blood. The traditional date for the founding of the city was April 21st, 753 BC. Romulus served as the first king of the small city of Rome, and nearly every later institution of the city is attributed to him. He was the first to divide the population into tribes, with a tribune as leader of each tribe. He was the one who picked a hundred men from the leading families and made them the senate. These men and their descendants would become the patrician class. Those not from families of the first senate were the plebeians. In those first days of Rome, the city was full of uncouth fugitives and scoundrels, the dregs of society. That was fine for Romulus, who was able to whip them into an army, but they had a small problem with securing the future of the city. There were very few women. To remedy the situation, Romulus decided to throw a festival and invited the inhabitants of the neighboring cities. Many came, perhaps to see this new city that had popped up. Many of them were Sabines, who came down from the nearby Apennine highlands. At a signal, the Romans snatched and kidnapped any woman of marriageable age. The communities who had had their daughters and sisters captured naturally prepared for war. The Romans quickly picked off and defeated a few of the smaller enemies, but when the Sabines led by Tadius arrived at Rome, they met their match. The fighting was intense, but before either side could strike a final blow, the Sabine women interposed themselves between the two armies and stopped the fighting between their brothers and fathers on one side and their new husbands on the other. Tadius and Romulus met, and they agreed to make a peace and form one community, with both leaders as rulers. A convenient story. Let's move out of myth for a second and look around Italy in the mid-8th century BC. In the south were a people we by now are very familiar with, the Greeks of Magna Graecia. Separated by their tribes and city-states, they were constantly jostling and feuding with each other. Moving farther north, up the peninsula, we reach a people we haven't yet encountered. Broadly, Central Italy was controlled by Italic people who spoke several related Indo-European languages. Among them were some less famous tribes such as the Feliscans and Umbrians, and more famous ones such as the Samnites and the Latins. These last two will be the most important for our story. The Samnites mostly inhabited the hills around the Apennine spine of Italy, mostly to the south and east of Rome. The Latins could be found in west-central Italy, mostly in the lowlands near the Tiber River. Just under 10 miles north of Rome, the southernmost city of another people could be found. The city was called Viae, and the people who lived there were the Etruscans. These Etruscans lived in the northwest of the Italian peninsula, not dissimilar from the modern region which still bears their name, Tuscany. The Etruscans have long fascinated historians and classicists. Unlike any of their neighbors, they spoke a non-Indo-European language, one that has still not fully been deciphered. We don't know what its closest relative is, but some modern and ancient guesses are that the language and the Etruscan people themselves had migrated from Anatolia. Whatever their origin, they have left a rich material culture with beautiful sculptures, pottery, and jewelry. They reached the peak of their power from 750 to 500 BC and controlled all of northern Italy, Rome, and the rich region south of Rome called Campania. They grew rich off trade with the Greeks to their south and their neighbors to the north. 
Those neighbors are next on our survey of the Italian peninsula. They were the Celts. No, not the Celts, despite what a Bostonian might argue. These Celts lived in the plains and rich valleys south of the Alps. The Romans called this area Cisalpine Gaul, the Gauls on this side of the Alps. Gaul is the Roman word for Celt. The Celts were a large collection of tribes living in Ireland, Great Britain, France, Spain, and Central Europe who all spoke Celtic languages and shared a similar culture. Their religion was marked by ceremonies led by Druids, reverence of sacred groves and other holy sites, and belief in the protective power of totem objects. The Celts had a strong kinship system where rulers and their extended family dominated society through their ownership of land and revenue from trade. Rulers maintained the loyalty of their followers through gift-giving and throwing feasts. Now we've completed our tour of the Italian peninsula at the founding of Rome. Let's get back to Rome's story. But remember, what you hear for the next few minutes is mostly myth. Romulus had by this point established Rome and spent his reign fighting with his neighbors. When the Sabine Tadius died, several years before, Romulus continued ruling alone. At the end of his life, according to some stories, he didn't die but was swept up in a whirlwind and carried off to the heavens. Now that it was time to pick a new king, the Sabines insisted on one of their own being chosen. Numa Pompilius was selected after much debate. Whereas Romulus had his focus solely on the military strength of Rome, Numa sought to set the city right with the gods. His focus was on religion. He instituted the Vestal Virgins, a college of women who were picked as young girls and sworn to celibacy for 30 years. They were responsible for many of the fundamental rituals of Roman religion, including keeping the sacred flame of Vesta alight and guarding the wills and testaments of the people of Rome. Numa also established the Roman calendar and the cults of Mars, Jupiter, and of Romulus and established the role of Pontifex Maximus, a high priest of Rome whose role was notably separate from the king. Whereas Romulus' rule saw 40 years of war, Numa's brought 40 years of peace. One set the foundation of Rome's military power, the other set the foundation of Rome's order. We won't get bogged down in describing in detail each of the seven kings of Rome. The reality is that there were surely more than seven kings, but the historical memory has boiled them down into seven figures who set the Roman ship of state sailing. Let's skip all the way to the last king, Lucius Tarquinius Superbus. His reign was so tyrannical the Romans gave up monarchy forever after. He was a member of the Tarquinius family, who were of Etruscan origin. His grandfather had been the fifth king of Rome. Tarquinius Superbus came to power in a coup after the assassination of his predecessor, Servius Tullius. He is known for his arrogance and his attempt to expand the power of the Roman monarchy. Not only did he kill some of the senators who opposed him, he refused to replace them in the Senate and generally ignored the Senate. His rule ended in 509 BC when he was overthrown by a group of Roman nobles. While the king was away at war, the king's son, Sextus, was filled with lust for Lucretia, a pure and pious Roman matron, and he raped her. Overwhelmed by the pain of this violence, Lucretia told her husband about the crime and then killed herself. In revenge, her husband, Colatinus, gathered a group of senators fed up with Tarquinius. Among Colatinus's companions was Lucius Junius Brutus and Publius Valerius. 
Together they vowed to end Tarquin's reign. They brought Lucretia's body out and paraded it throughout Rome, gathering the support of the plebeians wherever they went. Brutus opened up a public debate, attended by patricians and plebeians, on what form of government Rome should replace their monarchy with. A republic was agreed upon, with two consuls, picked from the patricians, ruling instead of a single king, and their terms as consuls would be limited to a single year before a new election would take place. Meanwhile, Tarquin was still on campaign with the army when he received word of the unrest in Rome. At nearly the same time, though, Brutus arrived and secured the support of the army. Tarquin attempted to enter Rome, but was not allowed into the city. He left in exile. Calatinus and Brutus became the first two consuls of the Republic. Brutus's first act as consul was to bring an oath before the people, swearing never again to allow a king to rule Rome. The year was 509 BC, and Rome was a republic. The date, like all dates from early Roman history, is suspect. It conveniently falls just one year before the Athenians established their democracy in 508 BC. The Romans always had to be first. The Tarquins had been overthrown, but not killed. Tarquinius fled the city and joined with the Etruscans. For the next couple decades, he and the Etruscans periodically made trouble for the fledgling republic. With the Roman kingdom swept away and the Roman Republic standing in its place, let's take a look at the structure of the republic's government. Perhaps most important is to begin with the patrician-plebeian distinction. Again, the patricians were descendants of Romulus's first senate, and only they could serve in the senate. The plebeians weren't and couldn't. At least in these early years, the consuls were patricians elected by the Senate for a one-year term. Each of the two consuls had the power of a king, but each also had the power to veto the actions of the other. The Senate had the power to pass decrees and control the state's budget and its foreign affairs. The Assembly was another uh, assembly which held power in the Republic. The Assembly's role was to elect magistrates and pass laws. Chief among these magistrates were the tribunes. The tribunes of the plebeians and the military tribunes were the most important. The tribunes of the plebs advocated for the interests of the plebs and had the power to veto any legislation. The tribunes were considered sacrosanct while holding office, and any violence against them was considered a violation of the gods. The tribunes of the plebs weren't original parts of the Roman system, though. It took a drastic action by the plebeians to assert their right to participate in government. In 494 BC, the plebeians had had enough. The prior year, the Romans had defeated a Latin army, headed by the exiled king Tarquinius, and fended off an attack by the Volscians, an Italic tribe living in the hills southeast of Rome. The army had been busy, but when they returned to Rome, many of the poorer plebeians found themselves in debt, and no help was coming from the rich patricians. The Roman historian Livy recounts that a particular soldier returned to find his debt so high he had to sell both his father's and his grandfather's farms, and yet his debt was still not paid. His story caused an outrage in the city. At the same time, reports came that the Volscians were preparing for another attack, but the plebs at first refused to enlist back into the military. One of the consuls assured the plebs that they would take up the issue once the enemy was defeated, but the other consul actually increased arrests of debtors. The Senate seemed ready to appoint a dictator to handle the growing crisis. 
Before that could happen, the plebs took matters into their own hands and agreed to gather atop Mon Sasser, the sacred mountain lying three miles from the city. The plebs closed up their shops, stopped working on the farms, and gathered on the mountain. A general strike. The city was crippled, and the economy came to a halt. The patricians saw they needed to negotiate. The two sides' delegations met and hashed out a solution. The agreement decided upon established the Tribune of the Plebs, which, as we said earlier, was an office which had the power to check the actions of the patricians and advocate for the interests of the plebs. The plebs now had a say in governance and were satisfied for a generation. We'll run briefly through these early days, since most of this early history is speculation anyway. Later writers had to fill in the early history from folktales and memories. All early records of the city were lost in 390 BC. Stay tuned to find out why. The Roman Republic in these early days was still just a city and the immediate countryside around it. Enemies waited nearby and all around. Each summer saw the legions muster and leave the city to fight their neighbors, whether Sabines or Latins or Volscians. These villages and tribal people were dangerous, but the settled and more sophisticated Etruscans were the greatest threat. The Etruscan city of Vii still sat just nine miles away, an ever-present menace on the horizon. Rome defeated and integrated the other cities of Latium following its victory over the Latin League in 496 BC. These other cities were still technically independent, but Rome had become dominant. The growth of Roman power over Latium worried the Etruscans, and small-scale fighting began between Rome and Vii nearly every year. Inevitably, the fighting escalated. Rome won a small victory in 480, but in 477, both sides engaged in a larger hostilities. The Veientines surprised the Roman army and defeated them, then marched to Rome and attacked the city. Fighting took place in and around the city, but the Veientines weren't able to capture it, so they instead ravaged the countryside and returned home. There was just as much turmoil inside the city as outside. The plebs now had a small amount of political power, but their grievances were many. Chief among them is that the laws of Rome were nebulous and only the patricians had the capacity to hire someone who actually knew the law. The plebs demanded that the laws of the city be written down. The Senate, of course, resisted and dragged their feet. But in the end, with the threat of another secession of the plebs, they eventually conceded and a group of ten men, the Decemvri, drew up the first ten tables of law. In 449, a second group of Decemvri finished the last two tables and presented the complete work to the Senate. Again, the Senate sat on the work, and it took another threat of secession for the laws to finally be promulgated. The laws of Rome were carved into these 12 bronze tablets and posted publicly for all to read. You might think the plebs would be happy now. Their demands have been met, and now anyone could read the law. But what they read wasn't to their liking. While before they had been vaguely aware of the distinction between the patricians and the plebs, and they knew they didn't have access to the same kind of political offices, now their inequality was spelled out publicly in bronze for anyone to read. They had gotten their wish, but their striving was far from over. The second half of the 400s was tough for Rome. Famine swept through the city several times, and attempts to purchase grain from the Etruscans or the Greeks of Magna Graecia weren't always successful. The whole citizenry of Rome was hungry, and this included the army. 
With the legions weakened, the Volscians and Aquians made incursions and peeled off some Roman territory, grazing their flocks on Roman farmland. Most dangerous of all was renewed hostilities with Veii, which flared up again in 438 BC. This time, a town under Roman control and on the Roman side of the Tiber revolted and joined the Veientines. The Romans sent four envoys to demand an explanation from the town, but they were murdered. Rome declared war against Veii and won a victory over them, but with losses so severe, an emergency was called in the city. No follow-up action could be taken, but the yearly skirmishing that had died down in the recent decades began again. In 406 BC, Rome felt confident and declared war on Veii. They were able to push the Veientine army out of the field, but were unable to assault the city, given its defensible location. A siege set in. Livy says that the building of winter housing for the soldiers to maintain the siege was totally new to them. The army was still made up of citizen soldiers, who usually worked in their fields or their trades until the summer campaign season came and they took up arms. The siege lasted for 10 years as VA was wealthy and able to resupply itself despite Rome's best efforts. Finally, in 396 BC, when things seemed to be going worse, with the Veientines' army destroying some of the Roman camps, the Senate elected Camillus as dictator to solve the siege and end VA for good. Immediately, Rome's fortunes improved. Camillus sought to finish the long siege. He focused his men on constructing siege weapons and in digging a tunnel under the city. The miners dug continuously in six-hour shifts. Before long, the tunnel had made its way under the wall and into the citadel of the city. When all was ready, his army attacked the city on all sides to distract the enemy's attention from the impending danger of the mine. Hand-picked soldiers ran through the mines and surprised the Veientines. Some attacked the enemy on the walls from behind. Others forced back the bars of the gates. Others again set fire to the houses from which stones and tiles were being hurled by women and slaves. Everything resounded with the confused noise of terrifying threats and shrieks of despairing anguish blended with the wailing of women and children. In a very short time, the defenders were driven from the walls and the city gates flung open. Some rushed in in close order. Others scaled the deserted walls. The city was filled with Romans. Fighting went on everywhere. At length, after great carnage, the fighting slackened, and the dictator ordered the heralds to proclaim that the unarmed were to be spared. Those who were spared from death didn't just live on in happy lives. They were sold into slavery. The Romans looted and ransacked the city. For the austere Romans, the wealth of VA was shocking. The city now thoroughly destroyed, Roman colonists were sent to establish a loyal presence there. With the defeat of this old enemy, Rome should have had some breathing room. But the story of Rome is one of almost constant war. Overconfident following their victory, the disaster about to fall on them was mostly self-inflicted. A large tribe of Celts called the Senones, led by their chief, Brennus, had recently settled in northern Italy. In 390 BC, the ruler of an Etruscan town requested the aid of the Senones, but when they arrived, the ruler felt threatened and asked Rome for help. Rome sent a small delegation. A conflict broke out between the Senones in the Etruscan town, and the Roman delegates stepped into the fighting and killed a Celtic chieftain. 
the honor-obsessed Celts considered violence by a delegate an extreme violation of courtesy. The Senones sent their own delegation to Rome, demanding justice, but the Romans denied their requests and instead honored the Roman delegates. Brennus was appalled at the Roman dishonor, and in retaliation he marched with his entire army 81 miles south. The towns and villages on the route hid and fled from the huge barbarian army, but the Celts loudly pronounced that their only feud was with Rome. The Romans were astonished by the speed of the Gallic march toward the city, and they had only time to muster an average-sized army. They marched out to meet them, but only got as far as 11 miles from Rome before meeting Brennus' army. When the two sides met, the Romans were outnumbered. They had to stretch their line wide to avoid being flanked, but this made their line dangerously thin. The Roman reserves were positioned on a hill to the right of the lines. Brennus, however, saw the Roman reserve troops on the hill and suspected that they would be used to attack his own army from the rear, so he sent his army to first attack the hill, rather than the army in the plain. When the Gauls charged, the Romans were spooked. The left wing fled across the river, with many drowning, and escaped to Vie, without even sending a message to Rome of their defeat. The right wing, nearer to the hill, fled in a more orderly fashion, back to Rome. The Gauls were shocked at the easy victory. The day after the battle, as the late summer sun began to set, the barbarian army appeared outside Rome's walls. There should have been a siege, but when they arrived, no troops manned the walls, and the gates to the city were open. Brennus suspected a trap, and sent scouts to look around. Inside, the city was in mourning. Too few soldiers were in the city to defend the walls, so the remaining defenders fell back to the citadel. Two days later, the Gauls finally entered the city, unopposed. They ransacked Rome, burning and killing until the city was in ruins. Their initial attempts to capture the citadel were unsuccessful, and a siege set in. It lasted seven months, and both sides began to starve. The Gauls, though, got the worst of it. Their famine was joined with an outbreak of malaria. Finally, the Gauls agreed to be paid to leave. When the Romans produced the gold, though, the Gauls produced loaded scales and claimed more was required. The Romans complained, but Brennus responded, Woe to the vanquished, and added his sword to the weights. Sources differ on what happened next. The Roman sources state that Camillus, who had been outside the city during this time, gathered the scattered remnants of the Roman army, including the soldiers who had fled to Vie. They entered the ruins of the city and fought off the sick and starving Gauls. Modern historians, though, think this part of the story was probably a later addition to provide a touch of dignity to this defeat. Not to spoil the story too much, but this sack of Rome is really the first sack of Rome. To be fair, it would be another 800 years, but we will get there in episode 41 of the narrative. The city was so devastated, many suggested relocating everything and everyone that remained to Vie. Camillus dissuaded them, and Rome was rebuilt quickly and haphazardly. For the next several years, the Republic was constantly at war, defending herself from enemies and erstwhile allies, who took advantage of her moment of weakness. In these battles, Camillus was always at the head, winning victory after victory. The Volscians were defeated, and their land laid waste. Next, the Aquians were defeated. The Etruscans attacked and captured the Roman colony of Sutrium, but Camillus repelled them. 
for his major role in rebuilding Rome and saving her in her moment of weakness, Camillus has been called the second Romulus, or the second founder of Rome. The rebellion of some of the Latin cities, which had been allied and integrated with the Republic for a century, was the most painful wound of those years. Tough conflicts occurred when the Latin cities of Praeneste, Tibur, and Tusculum all rebelled one by one. Each war ended in Roman victory, and they were all brought back into the Roman fold. In the first half of the 300s BC, Rome had re-established her control over Latium. But her expanded territory bumped into new peoples to her south, notably the Samnites. Who were the Samnites? They were an Italic people who lived south of Latium in a strip of territory stretching right across the Italian peninsula. The Romans considered them a warlike and tribal people, but they were actually quite sophisticated and had strong ties with the Greeks of Magna Graecia to their south. They were mostly rural herders and inhabitants of small hamlets, but also controlled the rich cities of Nola, Beneventum, and Cumae. A treaty was agreed between Rome and the Samnites in 354 BC, setting a river to divide their two spheres of influence. On the Roman side was Latium. South of the river was the rich region of Campania, which the Samnites had set their eyes upon. The treaty broke down in 343 BC, when the Samnites tried to expand their control over Campania and take the wealthy city of Capua. Without an army capable of withstanding the Samnites, the Campanians sent a delegation begging Rome for help. Now, Rome was in a bind because of her treaty with the Samnites. The delegates warned them that the wealth of the region would fall into the control of the Samnites rather than the Romans if they didn't intervene. Bound by honor, the Senate refused. Desperate now, the delegation unconditionally surrendered Capua into the control of Rome. Moved by this display, the Senate agreed to protect their new acquisition. The First Samnite War began. Quickly, the two sides moved against each other. The Romans quickly won three small victories which discouraged the Latin League and the Southern Etruscans from taking advantage of the Roman army being away from home. The war ended in 341, when one of the Roman consuls entered Samnium and found his army unopposed. The Samnites sent an ambassador asking for peace. They were tired of fighting the Romans and instead wanted to go to war with another tribe, the Sidicini. Rome agreed eagerly. Without significant fighting, her territory now extended into Campania and to Capua. Although the fighting with the Samnites was ended, a new war began almost immediately in the aftermath. This next bit is kind of a merry-go-round of alliances. The Samnites quickly turned the soldiers who had been mustered against Rome against the Sidicini. The Sidicini, in turn, asked the cities of Latium and Campania for aid. So, the Latins and Campanians attacked the Samnites, more ravaging the countryside than fighting battles. The Samnites, now officially at peace with Rome, asked why these Latins who nominally were under Roman control were attacking the Samnites. The Romans gave an ambiguous reply, perhaps afraid to admit that even as Rome had grown in power, the Latin cities had become stronger too. Rome demanded the Campanians stop their incursion into Samnite territory, but feared demanding the Latins do the same. In secret, the Campanians began to plot with the Latin cities and the Volscians to combine their forces and attack Rome. The plot was found out though, and representatives from the Latins were summoned to Rome. 
The Latins complained that they had been treated as subjects rather than allies for too long. They provided their share of soldiers for legions, but received little in reward for victories. They insisted that one of the consuls chosen by the Latins and half the senate seats should be reserved for them. All of Rome balked at the idea of giving the Latins a consulship. The plebeians had just secured the right to one of the consulships each year, and the patricians weren't about to give up their one remaining consulship. The Senate declined the Latin proposal, and the Latin War began. The Romans joined with their one-year-ago enemies, the Samnites, and together fought a battle on the base of Mount Vesuvius against the combined forces of the Latins, Campanians, Volscians, and Sidicini. The Romans and Samnites were victorious, but suffered heavy losses. The Latins and allies fled north. The legions caught up, though, and dispersed the fleeing Latins. The decisive battle of the Latin War came in 338 at Pedum, when the Romans caught two components of the Latin army, separate and defeated them each one by one before they could join up. Defeated again, the Latins submitted to Roman rule, never again to reassert their independence. The offer of Roman citizenship to the Latins secured this peace. The alliance between Rome and the Samnites, which had seen them join forces against the Latins, was merely an alliance of convenience, much like the Americans and the Soviets in World War II. Hostilities arose again between Rome and Samnium in 326, in the Second Samnite War. Perhaps a second war was inevitable, with their long-shared border and both desiring control of Campania. The treaty between the two sides fell apart when Roman colonists, who had begun to move into Campania, were attacked by Samnite raiders. The war began slowly, with little fighting on either side, with internal unrest keeping the Romans occupied at home. Once peace in Rome had been achieved, the legions set off to fight. Several neighboring tribes had joined with the Samnites in their fight against Rome, including the Abruzzi, who lived across the Apennines on the Adriatic shore, and the Apuli, who lived far to the south in the heel of the Italian peninsula. The Romans spent some time attacking Samnium, but also marched far from home, raiding and ravaging Abruzzo and Apulia to punish the tribes there for joining the Samnites. In 322, the Romans won a significant victory, and the Samnites asked for peace. The Romans rejected the peace, though, and here we see perhaps the first example of the Romans demanding unconditional surrender. They sought not to win, but to conquer. This attitude, first seen in the Second Samnite War, marks a turning point in Rome's story. No longer were the Romans content with defending themselves or making their city and its surrounding countryside safe from enemies. Now, for the first time, expansion became the goal. Perhaps their recent victory over the Latins helped them see that they were now the big fish in the Italian pond. I think, though, that the addition of Campania and Capua to Roman territory is what really kicked off the expansion. The surrender of Campania into Roman control brought its rich land into the Republic, and the upper classes of Rome began to taste the wealth that expansion could bring. Besides, Campania, Rome's new cash cow, would never be secure while the Samnites lurked in the hills above its fertile plain. Peace wasn't a lasting solution. The only option was to destroy the Samnites. The next year, though, their arrogance would cost them. The Romans received word that one of their ally cities was being attacked by the Samnites, and instead of taking the safe route, they took the quick route. It was a trap. At the Caudine Forks, they found themselves surrounded and their way blocked. 
Instead of fighting a hopeless last stand and risking the entire army being destroyed, the consuls surrendered. The Romans had been defeated without even drawing their swords. They and all their men were disarmed, stripped, and left with only a single piece of clothing. Then they were sent under the yoke, while the Samnites hurled insults at them. Passing under the yoke was an ancient ritual of humiliation that entailed stooping to pass underneath two spears tied together and standing upright. Passing under signified the loss of warrior status for the soldier. Rome was deeply shamed. The Romans, though, were never ones to sulk or let a defeat on the battlefield defeat their will. There was a lull in fighting for the next several years, but before long, the consuls brought armies south to attack cities in Apulia, and they successfully freed the 600 captives taken at the Battle of the Caudine Forks. Closer to home, the Samnites captured the Latin city of Fregelli and convinced Satricum to defect, which shocked the Romans. The city was a Roman colony. The army recaptured the city soon after, though, and executed anyone involved in the betrayal. With this reversal, the Samnites asked for peace. Again, Rome refused, but needed a breather, so they agreed on a two-year truce. The fighting resumed in 316 BC, and for the next several years, each side was able to capture a few towns of the other, without any action decisive enough to end the war. Without any significant victories, Campania was second-guessing its commitments to Rome. With the Romans at the lowest point, in 312 the war seemed to be winding down. It was then the Romans received reports that the Etruscans were planning on attacking. Fighting hill tribes was one thing, but a war with the Etruscans was another. One of the consuls remained in Samnium, while the other returned to Rome to prepare for a new front in the war. To interject for a second, one of the reasons for Rome's success was in its long-term planning and engineering. In 312 BC, the Romans began construction of the Via Appia, the first of the Roman roads, which ran for 132 miles from Rome to Capua. This paved road allowed for rapid movement of the legions, rain or shine, and made control of Campania easier. In 311, the Romans scored a large victory over the Samnites and engaged in a bloody battle with the Etruscans. The Romans seemed to be winning the battle, but it had begun late in the day, and when night fell, both sides stopped fighting. Under the darkness, the Etruscans retreated. They had lost their front line and had only reservists left. This defeat ended their campaign for the year. The next year, Rome won another battle over the Etruscans. The Romans began to chase, but the defeated Etruscans fled into the Caminian Forest, a place which had always haunted and terrified the Romans. Undeterred by scary children's stories about the forest, the consul led the legions across the woods and ravaged the Caminian hills nearby. The Etruscans were enraged and gathered their largest army yet. The Romans were clearly outnumbered, so they stationed themselves upon a hill and refused to engage. When night fell, though, quietly the Romans snuck down from the hill and once they were close enough, attacked the Etruscans while they slept. Most of them fled and several cities sued for peace. The final battle with the remaining Etruscans occurred at Lake Vadimo. The fighting was fierce, and the whole Roman army became involved. The fighting lasted most of the day, with each side tiring. The battle finally turned when the Roman cavalry dismounted and attacked as a fresh line of infantry. The exhausted Etruscans finally broke and fled. They had been on a long decline in power, 
both from the Celtic raids and increasing Roman incursions on their trade networks. But this battle was the last time the Etruscans seriously threatened the Republic. The Samnites now fought the Romans on their own, but the Roman noose had continually tightened over the past several years, and the Samnites, always a fractured and decentralized people, increasingly couldn't supply or link up their armies. The Samnites were still a fierce enemy and still inflicted losses on the Romans, but they couldn't escape the tightening noose. In 304, the large Samnite city, Bovanium, was captured and they finally sued to surrender. The Second Samnite War was one of the most transformative in all of Roman history. It saw the transition of Rome from a large city-state to an emerging regional power. It saw Rome rework its military from a phalanx modeled after the Greeks to a new, more flexible system called the Manipole. The peace signed by the Samnites saw 13 Roman colonies established in Samnium. The Romans also began to expand their power to the north into Etruria. Most of Italy, except for the Greek south, was now subject to Roman garrisons. The Second Samnite War is the first in a series of Roman wars that took place over three main parts, Samnite, Punic, and Macedonian. They all follow a similar pattern. In general, the first war is an indecisive prelude, the second war is the big transformational one, and in the third war, the Romans sweep up and destroy their enemies. The third act of the Samnite Wars began in 298 BC. The prior year, the Etruscans had begun to prepare for war due to frustrations with Roman colonies in their area. At the same time, the Lucanians who lived just south of Samnium, near the cities of Magna Graecia, asked Rome for help against the invading Samnites. After six years of peace, Rome was ready to expand further in the south and reduce the power of the Samnites further. Both consuls led armies into Samnium, with each consul leading his army to a victory over the Samnites. With the Samnite armies reeling, the Romans ravaged the countryside for the next several months. Eventually, the remnants of the armies of Samnium were flushed out and fled into Etruria. There, they secured an alliance with the Etruscans and the Umbrians, and Gallic mercenaries were hired. A huge army began to assemble, larger than any the Romans had faced before. The other powers of Italy were assembling a knockout blow to stop Rome's rise. The Romans, for their part, recognized this. They elected their two best generals as consul and sent them both to take on the enemy alliance. They scrounged together all of the Romans and Latins they could find, as well as other Italian allies. Fully formed, both armies consisted of about 40,000 men. In 295 BC, the two armies met at the plain of Sentinum, north and across the Apennines from Rome. Both sides stood facing off for two days before the Romans had enough and charged. The battle was intense and nearly evenly matched. Amidst the fighting, one consul, named Decius, seeing his troops faltering, put on ceremonial clothes, prayed to the gods, and charged into the enemy, sacrificing himself to save his army. This galvanized the Romans. On the other wing, late in the battle, the second consul saw that the enemy had begun to tire. He finally ordered in his fresh veteran reservists. They plunged into the battle and quickly began to turn the tide against the spent enemy coalition. The enemy lines broke and they began to flee. The Romans chased and inflicted heavy casualties, with as many as 20,000 dead on the enemy side, compared to less than 9,000 on the Roman side. 
This defeat led the Etruscans and Umbrians to pull out of the war. Their defeat would be the long, slow kind. The Samnites were left to face a quick, violent death alone. The Third Samnite War lasted another five years, during which the Roman legions devastated Samnium all over again. The Samnites finally capitulated. They would not trouble Rome again for another 200 years. The end of the war brought all of central and much of southern Italy into Roman control. Their control of Etruria was still one of treaty rather than total integration, and Greek city-states remained free in the boot and heel of the peninsula. But there was no question now who controlled Italy. The Samnites had proven the most formidable challenge to Rome, so far at least. Bigger threats lay on the horizon. Rome now ruled territories spanning the Italian peninsula from sea to sea. Expansion now would have to be either north into the Po Valley, where the dreaded Celts still lived, or south toward the rich Greek cities of the boot of Italy and Magna Graecia. Some of the Greek cities fell easily into Roman hands. Others, as we saw last time, required a fight. This is the part of the story which intersects with Pyrrhus and Hellenic Greece. We covered the details of these wars last time, but I'll give you a quick refresher on what happened. Rome and the city of Tarentum had a falling out, and for protection, the Tarentines requested help from the young hotshot, Pyrrhus of Epirus. He agreed to help the Tarentines, and arrived as soon as possible with an army. The Romans met him in battle at Heraclea. The battle was surprisingly tough for Pyrrhus, but in the end, Pyrrhus, with help from his war elephants, had beaten the Romans. He didn't yet have the manpower to attack Rome directly, though. Winter came, and both sides rested and called in allies. When spring came, both sides had larger armies. They met again at the Battle of Ascalum. The first battle had been a close one, and costly to both sides. This one was even closer. The Romans had learned from the last battle, and neutralized Pyrrhus's elephants. In the end, Pyrrhus won, but he had suffered heavy losses, losing many of his generals and elite soldiers. Pyrrhus saw now that winning a war against the Romans was not worth his efforts. Anyway, his end goal was Sicily. Italy was meant to be primarily a safe base for operations there. He would have to move on, with his supply lines still in danger. The king of Epirus had success initially on Sicily. He quickly captured the majority of the Carthaginian cities, but when they reached the last one, on the western tip of the island, they failed to capture it. Unless they could surround it by sea, the fortress was never going to fall. As they tried unsuccessfully to capture that last city, the Greeks of Sicily, whose support Pyrrhus was relying on, grew tired of his despotism. The Greeks were no longer willing to help him, and the Carthaginians were reinforcing and recapturing territory. The situation in Sicily was falling out of his hands. Back in Italy, the Romans were mopping up the tribes that had supported Pyrrhus, including some more of those pesky Samnites. The Samnites called upon Pyrrhus for help, and he used this excuse to return to Italy. Maybe things would go smoother if he defeated the Romans once and for all. A final battle between Pyrrhus and the Romans took place in Campania in 275 BC. Few details survive, but in another rough battle, the Romans this time were able to eke out a victory. They had finally defeated Pyrrhus. With this, Pyrrhus decided he had had enough of the lands to the west of his kingdom. He fled back to Epirus and abandoned all of his conquests except Tarentum. He would die just a few years later. The Tarentines were finally on their own.
The results of the Pyrrhic War for Rome were first, avoiding conquest by the elite Greek armies of the east. Second, Rome now had nearly free reign to conquer the remaining Greek cities of Italy. And third, the outside world was now waking up to the strength of Rome. Each time Rome defeated an enemy, though, it leveled up, and a new, more powerful enemy was on its horizon, until in the end, the only enemy left was itself. As the threat from the Greek invasion faded, two powers remained in the western Mediterranean, Rome and Carthage, and their conflict would begin in the rich island lying between them, Sicily. This next phase of Roman history would prove to be the most transformational. The Punic Wars pulled the Republic from a local power to a dominant regional power with a Mediterranean-wide reach. The Romans themselves would transform from an austere, honest, and martial people to a people relishing in the material and cultural riches of the Greek East. These wars between Carthage and Rome are called the Punic Wars. The word Punic is the Latin equivalent of the Greek-derived word Phoenician in memory that Carthage began as a Phoenician trading colony in modern Tunisia before expanding and superseding its mother country. Conflict between Carthage and Rome now seemed only a matter of time. It is said that when Pyrrhus abandoned Sicily and returned to Italy, he said, How brave a field of war do we leave, my friends, for the Romans and Carthaginians to fight in. Just as he apocryphally predicted, the First Punic War began on Sicily. Here's the situation on the island after the Pyrrhic War ended. In the southeast corner of the triangle-shaped Isle of Sicily was Syracuse, the strong, independent city-state who had repelled the Athenian invasion 150 years earlier. In the western two-thirds of the island, Carthage had expanded and secured its holdings. In the remaining corner, in the northeast, just across the strait from the toe of Italy, was where the trouble began. A group of mercenaries called the Mamertines had set themselves up as the rulers of the area, centered on the city of Messina. Not long before, a similar group of mercenaries had captured the city of Regium in the toe of the Italian boot. They had taken the city from the Romans, and when Rome recaptured the city, the rebels were brutally exterminated. The series of events which led to the First Punic War starting began when the Mamertines fought against Syracuse and were defeated. Faced with extermination, they appealed to Rome for help. On one hand, Rome had been looking for an excuse to expand into Sicily. On the other, the hypocrisy of executing one band of rebel mercenaries and then starting a war to help another rebel band was pretty blatant. Their treaties with Carthage forbade them the island, and they knew breaking the treaty would put them at war not only with Syracuse, but Carthage too. The consul Appius Claudius Codex was eager for war, though, and he convinced the assembly to support it with the promises of plunder. Greed won out, and Rome agreed to come help the Mamertines. Syracuse and Carthage were instantly at war with Rome, determined to keep control of the island a two-party affair. Consul Codex gathered his consular army and quickly crossed the straits. He soon engaged the Syracusans in battle and defeated them. The ruler of Syracuse, Hiero, now made the wise decision of joining with the Romans instead of fighting them. Besides, the deal the Romans gave him was a good one. He was to remain ruler of Syracuse, and even had his territory slightly expanded. Rome just asked that if they needed supplies, Syracuse would be there to help. Rome had secured eastern Sicily without breaking a sweat. 
With their rear defended, they pushed now into the Carthaginian side of the island and won several small battles and captured some smaller towns. The first indication this wouldn't be a quick war was when the Romans besieged a town called Acragus by the Carthaginians and Agrigentum by the Romans. As the siege set in, a large army of fresh Carthaginian troops was shipped in from Africa. The Romans would have to either fight or lift the siege, but they were stubborn and chose a third option, which was to build a double wall, one facing into the city and another facing outward. The legions found that they were now the ones under siege by the fresh troops. The Carthaginians attacked but couldn't penetrate the walls. Starving the Romans out became their goal. Here's where the alliance with Syracuse began to pay off. Although stuck between their two walls, the Syracusans were able to deliver a steady supply of food, allowing the Romans to hold out indefinitely. In a battle outside the walls, the Romans managed to drive off the Carthaginians. Soon after, the legions were able to breach the walls of the city. Stuck outside Agrigentum for months, discipline broke down, and the soldiers ransacked the city. When the carnage came to a close, the generals hoped the misery they had inflicted on the city would serve as a warning to other towns, showing them what happens if you resist Rome instead of surrendering peacefully. The other cities under control of Carthage took away a different message, though. This is what happens if the barbaric Romans take your city. So they held out all the more eagerly. Roman conquests became tougher after Agrigentum. Still, they pushed on from city to city, besieging and capturing one after another. Despite their victories on land, the Romans encountered the same problem that had stopped Pyrrhus. Without a strong navy, they couldn't capture several of the Carthaginian cities. So the land-loving Romans decided to build a navy. Lucky for them, they had recently captured a wrecked Carthaginian ship. The ship was brought back to Rome and used as a template for their own fleet. In just two months, the Romans constructed more than a hundred warships. Some kind of assembly line process must have been used. In the blink of an eye, Rome was now a naval power. They were also complete novices in naval warfare. The first naval skirmish was a disaster for the Romans. Not long afterward, though, the Romans achieved a huge victory at the Battle of Mylae. See, the Romans weren't experienced at the normal methods of naval warfare, which mostly involved ramming the prow of a ship into another ship's side. Since they were less experienced in this than the navy of Carthage, they devised a plan to level the playing field by creating a new type of naval warfare no one had experience with. Their secret weapon for this was called the Corvus. This was a large bridge on a pulley system. It was kept upright until the Romans were near an enemy ship. Then the bridge was released. It slammed down its metal spike into the enemy ship's deck. Then the Romans ran across and slaughtered the poor Carthaginian sailors. At the Battle of Mylae, Consul Dullius led the Romans to a great victory. They destroyed 44 Carthaginian ships. The Corvus had been the key to this victory, but this secret weapon would never be quite as effective again. Dullius was awarded a triumph in Rome, the first ever for a naval victory. Back on Sicily, though, despite their success at sea, Rome and Carthage had fallen into a stalemate. A savvy young general from Carthage named Hamilcar Barca led his mercenary troops to a surprise victory over a force of 6,000 Romans. Part of the reason for the stalemate was that Rome's focus had shifted, or rather, it had widened. 
Since the war began, Carthage had been raiding the coasts of Italy from bases on the islands of Corsica and Sardinia. Forces from Rome were directed there, leaving Sicily without an adequate army to finish the job. A consul named Scipio, no, not that one, briefly captured the island of Corsica from Carthage. A Roman foray into Sardinia was repulsed. With the war dragging on, the Senate changed policies and decided to go for a killing blow. The decision was made to try to end the war by invading Africa and directly attacking Carthage. In 256, the consuls Marcus Attilius Regulus and Lucius Manlius Volso Longus gathered all the soldiers they could muster. Setting out from Rome's port, Ostia, all 330 of Rome's warships escorted a huge fleet of transport ships into the Mediterranean Sea. Carthage had caught wind of Rome's plans and mobilized all 350 of her ships. With 680 ships and perhaps 290,000 combatants, many think this was the largest naval battle in all of human history. The sea must have been filled to the horizon with ships. In the chaotic mess of the battle, Rome gained the upper hand and managed to sink 30 ships and capture at least 60 more. The battle won, the path to the shores of Africa was now secure. The Romans landed on a peninsula a ways off from Carthage to establish a base of operations. They quickly captured the largest city in the area, and the majority of the ships returned to Sicily. The consul Regulus commanded a force of about 20,000, and he began a methodical march toward Carthage. Hamilcar, the Carthaginian general who had led a successful guerrilla campaign against Rome on Sicily, was recalled. He, with two other generals, were placed in joint command of a large Carthaginian army, which included a strong force of cavalry and elephants. They camped at a place called Addis for the night. The Roman scouts found the position of the Carthaginian army, and seizing the opportunity, a night march was ordered. Totally surprising their groggy enemy, at dawn, the Romans attacked the Carthaginian camp from two sides and threw them into chaos. The generals and cavalry survived, but the main body of the army was scattered. The invasion was going very well for Rome. The Romans now captured the city of Tunis, which lay just 10 miles from the Carthaginian capital. Now the Romans marched with impunity around the vicinity of the capital, devastating the area. With no means of stopping the Romans, Carthage sued for peace. The consul Regulus, though, filled with hubris, offered terms of peace so harsh that Carthage could only refuse. In desperation now, the Carthaginians fought on and hired a Spartan commander named Xanthippus to lead their troops. He gathered the remnants of the mercenaries of Carthage, whipped them into shape, and in 255 he faced the Roman army at Tunis. He effectively used his elephants and cavalry and nearly wiped out the Roman army leaving only a few thousand alive. These survivors now fled for their lives back to Aspis, where they had landed a few months earlier. The Romans sent a fleet to pick up the survivors and then defeated the remainder of the Carthaginian navy who had arrived to stop them leaving. As they sailed back to Italy, though, the Roman ships were caught in a storm and hundreds of them sank. One theory is that the Corvus made the ships unseaworthy in rough weather and contributed to the disaster. There's no record of the Corvus being used again afterward. Carthage had survived the haymaker thrown by Rome. Rome now had to recover enough to swing again. The war trudged on. 
Back on Sicily, Carthage recaptured Agrigentum and destroyed it, finding it too useful a base for the Romans. Although they lost Agrigentum, over the next several years, Rome increased her gains in Sicily and besieged the last two holdouts. Rome had rebuilt the warships which had just sunk, but in 255, many were destroyed in another storm. Roman ships surprised and attacked Carthage's navy at the Battle of Drepna off the western tip of Sicily, but were defeated. Next, Carthage cleaned up the last of the Roman warships at Phintius in 249. They could now raid the coasts of Italy with impunity. From here, there were several years of stalemate before the final end of the Long War. Never one to give up, Rome re-rebuilt her navy and began to blockade the remaining holdouts in Sicily. Carthage sent a relief force, but was defeated. The island was now blockaded, and the remaining Carthaginian troops on Sicily were trapped. They finally surrendered, and the war came to a close. Following the formula for these wars of the Roman Republic, the First Punic War was won by Rome, but the broader question of who would control the Western Mediterranean was still undecided. For 23 years, the merchant city of mercenaries had faced the martial Republic of Legions. The latter had won, but the final decision would have to wait another couple of decades. The immediate effects dealt with reparations and territory. First, Sicily was to be given to Rome, and soon after Sardinia and Corsica fell into Rome's hands. Second, Carthage was forced to pay a heavy tribute. Under the weight of these reparations, Carthage fell into unrest. Hamilcar, the general who had spent decades fighting tooth and nail against the Romans, swore, along with his son, an oath of eternal hatred against the Romans. That boy's name was Hannibal. That's it for this half of the episode on the Romans. In this half, Rome has transformed from a small city-state kingdom to a regional power. In the next half, we'll see Rome look death in the eyes as it descends from the Alps, before overcoming and then conquering the rest of the Mediterranean world. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave a rating and a review. See you next time.